This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to an ex-grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. John List believed that his family was turning away from their religion and that he needed to assure that they would go to heaven. After he saved their souls, he disappeared and started a new life without them. This is Monsters. Johannes Frederick List had lost his wife, Anna Marie, to cancer when he was in his 60s. He had one child with her, a son, William, though their genealogy records show what looked like two other children, another son, and a daughter. I can't find any mention of them in any other publication. When Johannes' wife became ill, he hired a live-in nurse to care for her named Alma List. About a year after Anna passed, Johannes and Alma got married and had a son together named John Emil List. At the time John was born, Johannes was 64 years old and Alma was 38, about the same age as William would have been. Alma's maiden name was List because she and her new husband shared a family tree. They were both descendants of the German immigrants who came to the United States and proselytized the Native Americans in Michigan. The immigrants were Johann George List Jr. and Johann Adam List. It's apparent that the tradition in their culture is to pass down family names, so the family tree is quite confusing. Try to follow along. Johann's Frederick List was the son of Johann George List and Maria Barbara List. They also had a daughter named Anna Maria Barbara Florence List, Johann's sister. Anna Maria married Michael John List and they had a daughter, Alma Marie List. This made Alma Johann's niece, but that wasn't their only familial connection. 
Michael John List was the son of Johann Adam List, who just so happened to be Johann George List's brother, making Michael John and Anna Maria first cousins. That made Alma not only Johann's niece, but also his first cousin once removed. This is how I've interpreted it from genealogy records, but other publications have a few of the details a little different, which is understandable since everybody in this family has the same fucking name. Johann Frederick's first wife was also named Anna Marie, but her maiden name was Hubinger. One of Anna Marie's relatives, Carolyn Hubinger, was married to Alma's brother, Emil List. Trust me, I've spent far more time than I'd like to admit keeping this family tree in some type of order. Yes, incest is gross, but being a very small community populated by immigrants from a different small community, it's not completely unheard of, especially back then. John Emil List, the subject of this story, was born in Bay City, Michigan on September 17, 1925. His father, Johans, had left the town that his father and uncle had settled and moved to Bay City due to its booming lumber trade. He worked hard and saved enough money to buy more than 50 acres of farmland and start his own dry goods business. Alma was said to be overly protective of John. He was never encouraged to play outside for fear he would catch cold or get dirty. He would sit in the kitchen and read as his mother cooked. People said that John developed a view of the outside world as a dangerous place due to his mother's paranoia. He finally got some freedom from Alma when he started high school. He had attended a small Lutheran elementary school, but attended a public high school that he had to take a bus to. He had to travel outside of the neighborhood, which made his mother nervous. While John was in high school, the war in Europe was raging, but the United States had vowed to remain neutral. That all changed, however, when Japan attacked the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, causing the Americans to declare war on the Rising Sun on December 8, 1941. Since Germany was an ally of Japan, they declared war on the U.S. on December 11th, pulling the U.S. fully into World War II. John would have been 16 years old at the time and watched as almost half of the boys in his high school opted to graduate early in order to join the United States military. Due to his mother's overprotective nature, she refused to let John leave school in order to go to war. John was a very patriotic boy, possibly overcompensating for his German heritage. When Americans began going overseas to fight the Nazis, opinions of German descendants began to sour. John, always striving for acceptance of his peers, may have been trying to prove his love of America. So, as soon as he graduated from high school, he joined the U.S. Army as an infantry laboratory technician. John attended basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, where he loved the discipline but felt his fellow soldiers were crude and swore too much. John wrote in a memoir that he penned in prison that he learned early on, quote, that higher rank did not necessarily correlate to either higher formal education or even proper upbringing, end quote. Rank came through experience and time and service alone, and what he considered to be his own proper education and upbringing didn't matter. John spent most of his time in the Army training in Louisiana. John's father had spent most of that time seriously ill, and on August 30, 1944, a base chaplain informed John that his father had passed away. The young soldier was given leave to go to his father's funeral, and it was there that people noticed how unemotional and cold he was. John returned to the Army, where he was finally sent to Europe to fight the Nazis in February of 1945. The war was reaching a close with a few Germans holding out in the Ardennes area. John described being involved in an infantry campaign in late March where his unit took on artillery fire. 
In April, he wrote in his memoir that he was on a patrol that was captured by Germans who threatened to kill them, but John would later tell people that his German was so good that they'd mistaken him for one of them. The truth was that the Germans knew that the war was nearing the end, and they were on the losing side, so they surrendered and turned themselves in. John would go on to tell people that he earned a bronze star for being a POW, which also wasn't true. He had earned a bronze star, but his entire unit received it for their participation in the war efforts. On May 8, 1945, Germany surrendered and the U.S. sent troops from Europe to help fight in the Pacific Theater. In August, John was on a troop transport ship headed for an invasion of the Japanese mainland. On July 26, the Allies had called for Japan to surrender or face, quote, prompt and utter destruction, end quote. Japan did not respond. On August 6, 1945, an enriched uranium fission bomb called the Little Boy was dropped on Hiroshima. Approximately 20,000 Japanese soldiers were killed, and it's estimated that between 70 and 126,000 civilians died in the bombing. The city was decimated. Japan's leaders dug in their heels and refused the Allies' demands. On August 9th, a plutonium implosion-type nuclear bomb called Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki. Approximately 150 Japanese soldiers were killed, and an estimated 39,000 to 80,000 civilians died in the bombing. Japan surrendered on August 15, 1945. This left John on a ship headed to a country that we were no longer at war with. The ship changed course and went to the Philippines, where troops spent eight months digging drainage ditches while the United States carried out the long process of pulling all of their soldiers back home. Private First Class John List returned home on April 22, 1946. On top of embellishing stories on how he earned his medals, he also refused to talk about his time overseas and played it up like he had developed some type of PTSD, but he spent less than a year overseas and most of that time was him traveling or waiting to come home. Once back in Michigan, John used his GI Bill to enroll in the University of Michigan and began working on a degree in business administration. He didn't spend a lot of time socializing, but he was involved in local church activities, and he also enrolled in the Army Reserve Officer Training Corps, more commonly known as the ROTC. By the time John graduated with a bachelor's in business administration, he was able to be commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army Reserves. John's mother attended the ceremony and told him, Du bist ein sehr guten junger Mann, which translated to, You are a very good young man. John participated in an accelerated master's program that took some of his military experience as credits toward the program, so only three months later, John earned his master's degree in accounting. John got a job at a prestigious accounting firm in Detroit right out of college, but in November of 1950, his Army Reserve unit was called up to fight in the Korean War. John wouldn't be seeing any action in Korea, though. He was stationed at Fort Harrison in Indiana and then Fort Eustis in Virginia in the Accounting Corps. Helen Taylor was in Newport News, Virginia, for the funeral of her husband, Marvin Taylor. Marvin was killed in action in Korea six months earlier and finally had been sent back home to his family. Helen was still grieving the loss of her husband when her sister, Jean, pushed her into going bowling. Fort Eustis had a movie theater and an officer's club, but John was not the type to go to the officer's club, and you can only see so many movies. One of John's friends suggested they go to town to go bowling, and that's where a grieving Helen met an awkward John. Helen didn't like John at first. He introduced himself as lieutenant, which she thought was an odd way to refer to yourself in a non-military social environment. His friend was much more outgoing, and she agreed to go on a date with him, but when she found out that he was actually married, John was there to pick up the pieces. 
John didn't know his buddy was married either, and a good straight-laced person like John would have never approved of lying to a woman. Helen noticed his honest quality, and a relationship developed. John listened to her and was generally interested in every detail about her life. He listened to her talk about marrying Marvin when she was only 15 years old and having her first child, a daughter named Brenda, less than a year later. That birth was followed by a son, Kenneth, who died at six months old. Then she had two stillbirths. They sat in the corner of a small coffee shop, and when the waitress refilled their cups, John took it upon himself to add sugar and cream to her coffee just the way she had done with her first cup. John enjoyed listening because it meant that he didn't have to think of something to say. As their relationship grew, even though John knew that she had so much more experience in life than he did, he felt like he needed to take care of her, to protect her. Before John and Helen were able to make the final decision to get married, Helen announced that she was pregnant. They had talked about getting married, but hadn't fully committed, so now that Helen was pregnant, they decided to definitely get married. Helen agreed to convert from Methodist to Lutheran, and the couple had a small ceremony on December 1st, 1951. Not long after the wedding, Helen told John that she was wrong about being pregnant. Some have speculated that it was a lie in order to get John to commit to marriage. Brenda would say in a later interview that she believed her mother settled for John out of desperation to be married again. As someone who left high school at 15 and married Marvin, Helen didn't know anything besides married life. John had a college education and was ambitious, and she did think that he was rather handsome in his military uniform. After a brief transfer to an accounting center in San Francisco, California, to help process soldiers returning from Korea, the couple and Brenda moved to Detroit. John's job at the accounting firm was still waiting for him, and he was eager to begin his non-military career. Though Helen had two more miscarriages after marrying John, the couple welcomed their first child, a daughter named Patricia, on January 8, 1955. This baby was healthy, and that made Helen happy, but the truth was, she hadn't really wanted another baby. John refused to use contraceptive when they were intimate. Helen told her sister that he didn't believe in it. He prayed and left it up to God. So when Helen became pregnant again in 1956, she was pretty upset. She called her sister and cried on the phone that she didn't think she would make it through another pregnancy. Spending money was a way that Helen comforted herself. When she was feeling good enough to go out, she would spend more money than John was making. It didn't help that John, despite being an accountant, wasn't good at managing money, so he set out to find a job with a higher pay. A co-worker of John's had left the accounting firm to become the comptroller at Sutherland Paper Company in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He suggested that John come take an accounting job with that company, and though John was skeptical at first, he eventually got an interview and was offered a job. He started with the company in early 1956 for a yearly salary of about $7,000. The average household income in the U.S. at the time was about $4,800. The average house in the U.S. would cost about $12,000, and a brand new Corvette would run you about $3,500. So 7 Gs a year was a pretty nice pay package at the time. It did mean the family would have to move to Kalamazoo, which was about two hours west of Detroit. Helen was happy because it was further away from Bay City, which meant Alma wouldn't be able to visit as easily. She never liked Helen, and she made sure her disapproval was well known. After the move, due to Helen's history of miscarriages, her doctor advised her to stay in bed as much as she could. Helen had become a member of three different book clubs in Kalamazoo and had no problem having a reason to stay in bed all day and read. Her sister said that she could sometimes finish two books in one day. 
This meant that Brenda was responsible for taking care of Patty during the day and John would take over when he got home from work. Before they had moved to Kalamazoo, Helen's doctor had suggested to John that she see a psychiatrist. He explained that Helen was showing signs of mental illness, specifically depression. John suggested he give her medication, but the doctor said it would only ease the symptoms. She really needed to see a psychiatrist. John suggested that he would have Helen talk to their pastor once they settled in Kalamazoo. He believed that the church would be able to help Helen with her mental illness. Of course, why wouldn't they do a better job than a trained psychiatrist? John Frederick was born on October 21st, 1956. Helen was not immediately accepting of the name, but John told her it was a family tradition and that there was no point discussing the matter. Helen said that John yelled at her that their son's name was final and he had a scary look in his eyes, so she gave in and agreed. Helen became pregnant again about a year later, which upset the struggling woman. She was ordered again to stay in bed and Frederick Michael was born on August 26, 1958. Helen didn't even bother discussing a name. John had already decided. With a nearly four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn, Helen became increasingly dependent on alcohol to get through the day. When John couldn't solve his wife's problems with prayer, he finally gave in and had her start seeing a psychiatrist. Helen didn't do much to participate in the therapy, but the doctor was prescribing her tranquilizers and a sedative called Doradin. She was more than happy to take those. They didn't have enough for a down payment on a house right away when they moved to Kalamazoo, so they rented an apartment while John saved to buy a house. When they finally were able to purchase a home, they bought a red split-level house on a street called Lover's Lane. While there, John began developing some very obsessive-compulsive behavior. He started cataloging every penny that they spent. He cataloged the seeds that he planted in the garden. He trimmed the edge of the grass by hand. He struggled to maintain perfection in a house full of imperfect people. He also got promoted to a management position at Sutherland Paper Company. He was now supervising a number of accountants and he got a raise to $9,300 a year. The promotion gave John a much-needed boost to his ego. The constant struggle at home had really taken a toll on him. Helen started calling John at work and leaving messages that said, quote, The baby soiled his diaper. If you want it changed, you have to come home and do it yourself. End quote. The company was pretty lenient with the employees running out to handle family emergencies, but his co-workers were surprised that he actually went all the way home to do it. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunstores app or dunstores.com for more info. Dunstores. Make Christmas for everyone. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see certaireland.ie. Sometime in 1959, Brenda ran away with her boyfriend, Wayne, and tried to elope. They went into Indiana and tried to get married, but the Justice of the Peace denied their request because the two were still underage. 
They left the courthouse, and while they were driving to another location to attempt to get married, they got into a car accident. Wayne suffered minor injuries, and Brenda was fine, but when they got to the hospital, the staff called their parents. John and Helen lectured both Brenda and Wayne about their choice, claiming that Brenda could get married after she finished college, but once Brenda turned 18, she left home and immediately got married. In 1960, Sutherland Paper Company was purchased by Kalamazoo Vegetable Parchment, and the company became KVP Sutherland Paper Company. The company now had too many people in the accounting department and needed to thin out. Unfortunately, John's personality didn't lend itself to be a good manager. His perfectionism made him unable to delegate responsibility, so he insisted on doing everything himself. Instead of firing John immediately, they gave him time and told him he should start looking for employment elsewhere. John did exactly that, and though he got an offer for a more well-established company, in 1961, he took a position he was offered as general supervisor of accounting at a small but rapidly expanding company called Xerox Corporation. Xerox offered John a $12,000 annual salary, but it did mean that his family would have to move to Rochester, New York. Though Helen was not happy with moving again, they were able to rent a big house with more than enough room for the kids before buying their own. Once in Rochester, Helen stopped drinking and cut back on her sedatives. She hated Michigan, and though she was continually yearning to move back south to warmer weather, she actually liked Rochester a lot. John and Helen started occasionally hiring a babysitter so they could go out on their own. Helen was even able to convince John to get a vasectomy so she didn't have to worry about any more pregnancies. The happiness on the outside was hiding struggles on the inside. In 1964, John earned about $25,000 from Xerox, including bonuses. The lists were still going into debt, buying new furniture and appliances for their house. John was also making Helen accompany him to corporate events, which caused her to start drinking again. Due to the excessive spending, John continually tried to get a promotion at work. He felt that he was vice president material, but the company, now having slowed down from its massive growth, had noticed that John was not the best leader. Anytime he had to speak in front of a group, he would break out into hives and start twitching. John went into his boss's office one day and demanded a promotion, but he was denied. He called their bluff and threatened to quit if they didn't promote him, but he found out the hard way that they actually weren't bluffing. John was again in the market for a new job. John would eventually land his dream job. He traveled to New Jersey to interview for a position as vice president and comptroller for First National Bank of Jersey City. It came with a guaranteed $25,000 annual salary and most importantly to John, the title of vice president. John bought an estate called Breeze Knoll at 431 Hillside Avenue in a town called Westfield, which had 19 bedrooms, 5 bathrooms, 10 fireplaces, and a ballroom with a stained glass skylight. It was the perfect home to fulfill John and Helen's dream of displaying their status to the world. They were able to purchase the home, but only if they borrowed the down payment from John's mother. Even though John had been making a small fortune working at Xerox, they had absolutely no money saved. Alma was more than happy to fork over the $10,000 down payment with the stipulation that she would be able to move to New Jersey and permanently live with them. Helen was completely opposed to having Alma live with them, but John had explained that the house had separate servants' quarters with its own kitchen. Helen didn't care. She didn't want to be in the same house as Alma. John and his mother talked to each other in German so she wouldn't understand what they were saying. 
The down payment had already been paid, and Alma had already sold her house, so there was no turning back. Helen would be stuck in the giant estate with her disapproving mother-in-law. Things turned from bad to worse when Helen passed out in the middle of their argument. When she came to, John promised that they would get her to a doctor once they got to Westfield, but Helen told her that she already knew what was wrong. She said she had malaria. She explained that while she was with Marvin, he had a tendency to stray while he was away in the military. In 1948, he gave her syphilis, and even though penicillin was available at the time, it was reserved for military personnel. They also hadn't even proven penicillin to be a treatment for syphilis at the time. What doctors did was give the patient malaria, and the ensuing fever would kill the syphilis. Helen would eventually be diagnosed with cerebral atrophy, which was a degenerative shrinkage of the brain tissue. Helen, using the drugs and alcohol to help cope with the symptoms, was actually aggravating them, causing disorientation and paranoia. The 1960s were a hard time for John. He was a man who was deeply rooted in his stern German upbringing, and change was not something he was capable of. Young people were expressing free love, people were listening to rock music and doing drugs, boys had long hair and sideburns. Worse yet, when the Vietnam War started, people in America were out protesting the military instead of being eager to sign up and help fight. As Patty reached her teens, she would become an outgoing, independent young woman. John got a call from her school when she told a teacher to go fuck himself. Then, Helen decided that she was no longer interested in being part of their local church. Not only did she not want to attend anymore, she told John to ask the church office to remove her from their ranks. John's dream job only lasted a year before he was fired for not being able to fulfill the duties of his position as vice president. The job required John to find new business accounts and add them to the bank. It required social skills to reach out to people and convince them to do business with First National. John was incapable of meeting the company's needs, and he was outright fired. John was too ashamed to tell his family that he was fired. He spent the next six months pretending to go to work, but he would actually go to the train station and read all day. He would take money out of his mother's bank account, which he now had control of, which he told himself was just a loan. He started working at the American Photographic Company, but that job only paid him $12,000 a year. In order to make up the extra income, John took two extra mortgages out on the house. The job didn't last long, though, since the company relocated in 1969. John was unemployed yet again. His worry with his family had begun to overwhelm John. God was not helping him provide for his family. Helen had turned away from the church, and he felt that Patty was also headed in that direction. He was concerned about his daughter frequently going out to dances, even though they were held at his church. John finally accepted a job working from home, selling insurance and mutual funds. It wasn't accounting and he had to be social, but he was making a little more than he was making at American Photographic. It still wasn't enough to afford the lavish lifestyle they'd become accustomed to. Bills were piling up. At the end of the 1960s, Helen was hospitalized due to her memory and balance problems. After running tests, doctors believed that Helen's condition was either caused by syphilis of the brain or from drug toxicity. Early stages of liver disease pointed toward the latter. Helen had denied any drug or alcohol use, but after nurses found her stash of Doradin, she finally confessed to both issues. She had five or six daily scotches and four or five daily Doradins. 
On top of that, she had also had syphilis in the 1940s. Giving her malaria had not completely rid her body from the syphilis, and by this time, she was in the final stages of tertiary syphilis of the brain. Unfortunately, there was nothing that could be done to cure her. Helen was ordered to stop taking the Doradin and sent home. John Jr. and Fred were both growing up with few problems. Johnny was outgoing and into sports, and Fred was more of the quiet loner. Johnny played soccer, and Fred took care of the animals in the house. In 1971, John's income from selling insurance and mutual funds had dwindled to almost nothing. Patty and Fred had after-school jobs that helped, but their debts were piling up and the bank was starting the process of foreclosing on their house. Alma's bank account was almost empty. John began blaming his family. Of course he did, because John never blamed himself for any problems that arose in his life. He began thinking of his family as parasites feeding off of his earnings. He believed that his children were being raised in a heathen world and their lack of faith would ultimately cause their demise. On October 14, 1971, John went to the Westfield Police Station and applied for a gun permit. The officer took his fingerprints and told him he could pick up his permit in two weeks, but John never returned. John realized that he didn't need a permit because he already had what he needed. While in Europe during World War II, he had purchased a Stair 1912 9mm handgun and his father's Colt 22 caliber revolver was stored in their basement. On the evening of November 5th, John sat his kids down at the kitchen table and instructed them to prepare to die. He said that they would die soon and he wanted to know if they wanted to be buried or cremated. Even though they were shocked at the question, they all answered that they wanted to be buried. Patty had a drama rehearsal the same night and she was visibly upset. When her drama teacher, Edwin Liliano, asked what was wrong, she told him, quote, My father is going to kill me, end quote. The teacher had heard many teenagers blurt out that their parents were going to kill them, but it was always an overreaction. Patty insisted that her father was quite literally going to kill her, but Ed told her she would be okay. Patty then warned him that if her father ever said that they were going away, that would be it. Ed couldn't believe what he was hearing. Patty was clearly looking for attention. Sure that everything would be fine, Ed gave the teenager a ride home. On November 9, 1971, John had planned the day down to every detail. Even though he had called to cancel the newspaper, one was delivered to their doorstep anyway. He added, call the New York Times and remind them to stop the paper delivery, to his list and sat back to read today's news. The newspaper would just reinforce his beliefs that the world was moving away from God. A front-page story read, quote, School prayers blocked by house by 28-vote margin, end quote. Within the pages was a full-page ad for a book about Charles Manson. Other ads appeared for books about sex, such as Any Woman Can and The Sensuous Man. The entertainment section had ads for musicals like Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. The world past their curb had become a dangerous place in John's eyes, not unlike how his mother viewed the world when he was a child. After the three kids all left the house to go to school, John retired to his office where he reached into a cabinet drawer and retrieved the stayer and the colt. Not long after, Helen came downstairs and made herself a cup of coffee. As she sat at the kitchen table in her bathrobe, drinking coffee, John approached her from behind and shot her in the back of the head with the 9mm. The bullet entered the base of her skull and lacerated the brainstem. Her death was instantaneous. She was 45 years old. 
The force of the shot knocked Helen to the floor. Worrying that the noise would alarm his mother, he hurried up the back stairs to the third floor and entered Alma's quarters. She was standing in the kitchen, holding a small plate of butter, waiting for her toast. She asked John what the noise was, but John said it was nothing. He lifted the stair pistol and took a shot, but Alma had moved. She screamed, quote, Are you crazy? End quote. John got a little closer and shot his mother once, just above the left eye. The bullet penetrated her skull and lodged in her brain. Alma fell to the floor in the kitchen. She was 85 years old. John had planned to move his mother's body downstairs, but he realized he wouldn't be able to manage that. Instead, he dragged her body to a storage closet and cleaned up the blood. Then he went into the basement and brought up three sleeping bags. He opened all of the sleeping bags and laid them out on the floor. He dragged Helen's body into the ballroom and onto one of the bags. He then mopped up all of the blood. It wasn't because he was trying to hide anything. He simply couldn't stand the mess. John took off his bloody clothes and showered before putting on a fresh new suit. After killing Helen and Alma, he called his boss at State Mutual Life Assurance Company and canceled a meeting they had scheduled for that day. He called his pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church and told him the whole family would be out of town for a while. He lied and said that they had to go to North Carolina because Helen's mother was sick. He also wrote notes to leave at the school to explain the kids' absences. At about 1.30 p.m., John went to the bank and took all of his money's bonds out of a safety deposit box. He cashed the $2,000 in bonds, plus interest, and emptied his own account. He had planned to empty Alma's account as well, but there was so little money left in the account that he decided not to. He left the bank with about $2,800 in cash. John made a stop at the post office where he mailed a key to the address of their mansion in Westfield so the police would be able to unlock his desk without breaking it. He also asked the postmistress to stop their mail until further notice because he was going on vacation and the woman behind the counter agreed. Back at home, John wrote letters to family members, Helen's sister and mother, and Alma's sister. They wouldn't understand why he had to do what he did, but they needed to know. Just as he had started writing, the phone rang. On the line was Patty, saying she wasn't feeling well and asked her father to come pick her up. John grumbled a little bit and then agreed to go get his daughter. When they arrived home, John parked the car in the back of the house as usual and rushed to get into the house before Patty. When the young girl came in through the back door, John was waiting with the 9mm pistol and shot her in the back of the head. Patty had turned her head at the last moment, which caused John to shoot her through the left cheek. The bullet hit the foramen magnum, which is the hole at the base of the skull that the spinal cord passes through. Then it ricocheted off her right temporal bone and came back out the left side of her face. Patty dropped to the floor. She was 16 years old. He dragged his daughter's body into the ballroom and placed her on a sleeping bag beside his wife. And of course, he cleaned up the blood. At about 5 p.m., John drove to where Patty and Fred worked. Patty had obviously called in sick, but Fred finished his shift and was waiting in front of the office when John arrived. When they had gotten home, Fred rushed into the house ahead of John because he had forgotten to feed the fish that morning. John worried that Fred might go into the ballroom and see the bodies, but he didn't. He went into the dining room, fed the fish, and came back into the kitchen. When Fred's back was turned, John raised the stair and shot his son in the back of the head. He was 13 years old. Fred's body went onto the sleeping bag right next to Helen. The blood, again, was cleaned up. John Jr. was supposed to be at soccer practice, but due to the cold weather, it got canceled. 
John hadn't had time to reload his gun when he heard a car coming up their driveway. John quickly hid behind the door to the kitchen, and when John Jr. entered the house, he felt that something was wrong. He slowly entered the kitchen and saw his father pointing a gun at him. When John fired, the boy ran, causing the bullet to miss his head and hit him in the back. The next shot hit him in the side of the head, but still didn't kill him. John Jr. tried to crawl away, but wasn't able to. He rolled over onto his back and looked up at his father. John stood over his oldest son and shot him right between the eyes. The boy's eyes continued to flutter, which angered John. John was angry that his son refused to die. Didn't he realize that this was for his own good? John fired the 9mm into John Jr.'s chest until it ran out of bullets. Then he pointed the Colt revolver at his son and fired over and over into his chest until that gun was also out of bullets. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to an ex-grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Vouch excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see certaireland.ie. John Jr. had been shot 10 times. He was 15 years old. John's face was hot and red with anger. Why had the boy been so disrespectful to fight him? Why did John Jr. make him do that? Remember, John never blamed himself for anything that ever happened. As far as John List was concerned, if everybody just did what John thought they should do, the world would be a perfect place. John moved his son's body into the ballroom and cleaned up the blood the best he could. John Jr. had made the most mess since he put up a struggle. John eventually gave up and convinced himself that the house was clean enough. John finished writing letters to the family and then wrote a letter to Reverend Ray Winkle explaining exactly why he had killed his whole family. Though John never intended to hide the fact that he killed his family, some people might wonder why he sent a full confession to his pastor. Simple, John believed that confessing your sins absolved you from them. Once John was done writing the confession, he breathed a sigh of relief as he believed he was no longer to blame for his actions. The letter to his pastor was five pages long, but part of it read, quote, I am very sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what I have done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and that any reason that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least partially understand why I felt I had to do this. 1. I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. 2. That brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare, was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know that they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. 3. With Pat being so determined to get into acting, 
I was also fearful as to what this might do to her continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. 4. Also, with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon, but when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jutsey wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and stated that she wanted her name taken off of the church rolls. Again, this could only have given an adverse result to the children's continued attendance. So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was too much. At least I'm certain that they have all gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows what would have been the case. End quote. So his reason for killing his family was because they were out of money and Helen had stopped going to church, which might have influenced the kids to stop going to church. He ended their lives on the basis that maybe, possibly someday, the kids would stop going to church and then they wouldn't get into heaven. So he just killed them now to ensure they would go to heaven. Then he writes that he believes he is right with God because Jesus died for his sins. <sighs> he went on in the letter to explain that he killed his mother because he didn't want her to be upset by the murders and he knew she would also go to heaven. He wrote about final arrangements, left contact info for people who could help the reverend arrange his mother's funeral, and asked him to remove him from the church rolls. John placed the letter in a filing cabinet and labeled it Letter to Reverend Raywinkle. With it, he left the letters to the family members and asked that the pastor deliver them for him. He placed both guns and the remaining ammo in the drawer and locked the filing cabinet. He put the key to the cabinet in a desk drawer and locked that, too, before going to bed, where he had no trouble sleeping. The following morning, John had a light breakfast before he gathered up a few things he planned to take with him. His Bible, some other personal belongings, and a paper bag containing his bloody clothes. He planned to throw the bag away in a dumpster in New York, but the reason is unknown. He had confessed to the crime, so disposing of the clothes didn't make much sense. He grabbed the $2,800 in cash he had withdrawn from the bank, turned down the thermostat in the house, and got into his 1963 Chevy Impala with a broken muffler. The neighbors knew that the List family had gone out of town, and they assumed that they had left some lights on in the house to deter burglars. But after a month, when the lights started flickering and going out, people began growing concerned. Another growing concern was that of Patty's drama teacher, Ed. He kept recalling the conversation he had with Patty about how her father was going to kill her. She told him that he would claim that they were going away for a while, but that he would really kill them. Patty's friends began to wonder why it had been so long without having heard from her. Patty was an avid letter writer, and even on short trips, people could expect a letter or a postcard. Going away for almost a month with not a word to him or any of her friends was unusual. Ed began snooping around the list house. Ed also asked a friend who was a Westfield police officer if there was any way they could check on the house. The officer told him that no crime had been committed, so they had no reason to enter the home. Ed decided to take it upon himself to go into the house and investigate. He told a story about going into the house alone and discovering the bodies on December 5th, but his account was written off as a mistake in his memory due to the traumatic nature of what really happened. According to Ed, he went into the List house alone on December 5th, parking down the street and sneaking up to the house because he knew the neighbors were keeping an eye on the property. He found a basement window unlocked, so he climbed into the house and went upstairs where he found the bodies laying in the ballroom. He exited the house through the back door, locking it behind himself and went home. 
He kept the discovery a secret for a couple of days because he didn't want to get into trouble for breaking into the house. On December 7th, he said that he overheard some of his male students saying that they were going to break into the house, so he told them no and offered to do it himself. This time, another teacher, Barbara Sheridan, offered to go with him. Ed said he drove right up the driveway and made a lot of noise as he slammed his car door and pounded on the front door of the house. This was to alert the neighbors who would surely call the police. And they did. When two patrol officers arrived at the scene, Ed and Barbara introduced themselves and explained why they were there. They were concerned about the family since they had been gone for so long and nobody had heard from them. Officers Charles Holler and George Zelesnik shared their concern and agreed to check out the house. Officer Zelesnik checked the perimeter of the house and when he got back to the front porch, he checked a side window that led into the dining room and found that it was unlocked. Officer Holler entered the house through the window first, followed by Zelesnik, who told Ed to wait, but Ed didn't listen. Inside the dining room were four large fish tanks. Some of the tanks had dead fish floating in them, but some of the tanks had automatic feeders, so the fish were still alive. Inside the home, classical music was playing over an intercom system throughout the house. Before he left, John had tuned the radio to WQRX, New York's classical music station, and set it to play over the whole house intercom. The officer saw streaks on the floor that looked like blood. They followed it into the ballroom, which was dark so they didn't immediately see the bodies. As they moved their flashlights around the room, they first thought that they saw mounds of clothes piled on the floor, but when they moved closer, it became clear that the mounds were actually bodies. Holler asked Ed if the bodies were of the family he was looking for, and Ed confirmed. They were the bodies of Helen, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick List. The officers cleared the house room by room. In the master bedroom, the room that had become Helen's room in recent months, they found bloodstains on the bedsheets. It wasn't enough blood for Helen to have been killed there, so they assumed the killer had sat on the bed at some point. On the third floor, the officers found bloodstains in the kitchen. It was obvious that someone had done a hasty job of cleaning up, but the evidence was still there. When they opened a storage closet off of the kitchen, they found the crumpled body of Alma List. She was lying in a heap on the floor of the storage closet, with a towel over her face. It seemed that John couldn't handle her looking at him while he attempted to clean up. Once the house was cleared, Officer Holler called dispatch to inform them of the mass murder. Chief Moran couldn't believe what he was hearing. There hadn't been a single murder in Westfield in eight years. Now, a mass murder? When the police chief arrived, he found a note sitting on the desk in John's office. It read, quote, To the finder. 1. Please contact the proper authorities. 2. The key to this desk is in an envelope addressed to myself. 3. The keys to the files are in the desk. The mail for the house at 431 Hillside Avenue was still being held by the post office. The envelope with the key to his desk was somewhere in the post office amongst the 162 pieces of mail waiting for the List family to return from vacation. The chief was not about to wait to get a key to unlock the desk, so an officer forced it open with a crowbar. This was a very telling piece of information about the mind of John List. He murdered his entire family, but was so concerned with order that, on top of cleaning up after the murders, not to cover up the crime, but simply to tidy up, he fully expected the police to go get a key to his desk so they wouldn't damage it. 
John was so detached from emotion that he thought it was perfectly reasonable for the police to wait for a key. Inside the filing cabinet, Chief Moran found the used firearms and the envelope to Reverend Raywinkle with the confession letter. At the end of the five pages, John had explained why John Jr. was hurt more severely. Quote, John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John probably didn't consciously feel anything either, end quote. He crossed out the word probably, trying to convince people he was somehow a compassionate person for trying to make their deaths painless, or, more importantly, trying to convince himself. The confession continues, quote, Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making my peace with God, and for this I'm assured because of Christ dying, even for me, end quote. He absolves himself of all wrongdoing. In John's own eyes, he's not a sinner, even though he murdered his family. He also includes a postscript that explains where Alma's body is. On December 9, 1971, John's Impala was found parked at the long-term parking lot of Kennedy International Airport in New York. Inside the car, the authorities found the car keys, John's University of Michigan school ID, an alumni association card, an American forestry card, and two New Jersey State Board of Accounting IDs dated 1969 and 1971. Since nobody named John List was recorded as a passenger around the time the car was parked, they believed he most likely flew out under an assumed identity. We're used to going to the airport and having the barcode on our enhanced driver's license scanned, then having our bags x-rayed, and then having to take off all of our jewelry, belts, and shoes, then getting into a machine that scans us down to our bone marrow. In 1971, airport security was basically comparable to a librarian. You have a ticket, you get on the plane. They didn't care whose name was on the ticket or if it was in your name. Plus, a driver's license was just a piece of paper you could forge with supplies you found at an elementary school. They were also aware that John could have just parked the car there to make it look like he took a flight. But either way, John had fled the state of New Jersey, which meant the police were able to get the FBI involved in the case. Federal warrants were issued for John for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Those were on top of the five warrants from the Westfield Police for premeditated murder. The FBI published wanted posters for John. They described him as 46 years old, 6 foot, even though he was actually 6 foot 1, about 180 pounds, with graying brown hair and brown eyes. He had a scar behind his right ear from a mastoidectomy and scars on each side of his abdomen from a herniotomy. The flyer noted that John was wanted for killing multiple members of his family and could be armed. He should be considered dangerous. On December 9th, John List was added to the FBI's most wanted list. He would remain there for 18 years. After reviewing John's history, they discovered that the prescription for his eyeglasses had to be regularly adjusted, so they distributed flyers to eye doctors throughout the country. They also noticed that he suffered from severe hemorrhoids and frequently purchased the medication Preparation H, so they also sent the flyer out to pharmacies. They found Helen's passport in the house, but John's was missing. They know he didn't use it since nobody flew out under his name, but he could have purchased a fake passport and flew to Germany where he would have blended in no problem. Police tracked down every single passenger from every outgoing flight from the New York area around December 10th with no luck. The feds searched every state where John had any family members and then expanded to the entire country. They contacted Interpol to hunt him in Europe and South America. 
They put his fingerprints in databases. They collected handwriting samples. On August 30, 1972, the list house burned down. Souvenir collectors had already taken the mailbox, the house numbers, and the brass knocker. At about 3 in the morning, a neighbor awoke to the flickering fire engulfing the house at 431 Hillside Avenue. Three fire trucks arrived on the scene amongst the sea of spectators. Easily over a hundred people were outside watching the local murder house burn down. There was nothing the fire department could do to save the house. It burned until about 7 p.m. The house that had been a steady reminder of such an awful incident was gone. Rumors started that vandals had set it on fire. Some thought the neighbors did it to rid their neighborhood of the eyesore. Others believed that John had come back and burned the house down to cover evidence, and there were even some who thought the ghosts of the children had started the fire. One neighbor said he smelled kerosene after the fire, and though they never found out who torched the house, it did seem that it was done intentionally. The house was gone and the authorities were out of leads. Nobody knew where John List was, or if he was even still alive. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista, or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunnstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Look on the plus side. With a €100 Euro cashback, plus a monthly interest refund on purchases, the Avant Money Reward Plus credit card really does give you, well, plus rewards unequaled. Apply today at avantmoney.ie. Lending criteria T's and C's apply. Info correct 5th of May 2022. Cashback payable within six months of account opening subject to qualifying criteria. Avant card DAC trading as Avant Money is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Robert P. Clark purchased a little trailer in a mobile home park in Denver for $1,500 cash. He spent his days reading the local papers, books, and of course, the Bible. He also had a small black-and-white television that he would watch the news on. He lived a simple life off of his meager savings, but after a while he knew he needed to bring in some money. With the intention of keeping his life simple, Bob walked across the street to a Holiday Inn where there was a help-wanted sign. They needed a cook for the night shift, and though the position didn't pay much, it was more than enough for Bob, who didn't have much in the way of bills. He owned his trailer, and he conveniently didn't have a family to support. That's because he had murdered them. After John List left his house on the morning of November 10, 1971, he drove to the long-term parking lot at the Kennedy International Airport. He left his car and walked to a train station where he traveled to Michigan and then to Denver, Colorado. Once there, he first stayed in the Motel DeVille and ordered a new social security card. At the time, anyone under 50 years old could order a new number with no questions asked. He listed himself as Robert Peter Clark, who was a student he knew at the University of Michigan, and he put his birth date as April 26, 1931. He made himself six years younger. He made up parents' names, Father James Peter Clark and Mother Ruth Ann Clark. Soon, a letter from the Social Security Administration would arrive at the motel with a new card with a new Social Security number. From there, he bought the trailer with cash and laid low for a while before finding a job at the Holiday Inn, using his new Social Security number on his employment forms. 
He stayed inside all day and walked across the street to work at night. He was out of sight most of the time, and as time went on, he realized that his escape plan had worked. He had created a new life. Bob's professional life was not turning out much different from John's. Bob was fired from his job at the Holiday Inn for not being fast enough on the grill, but he was able to find another job as a cook at the Piney Country Club. This job paid better, and it afforded Bob the ability to move into a furnished apartment. It had been three years since he had murdered his family, and he was beginning to get comfortable being out in the open more. In 1975, Bob decided it was time to find a new church. He had already seen some churches around town, but one stood out to him, and it was on a convenient bus route, the St. Paul's Lutheran Church. It was a big brick building with a tall bell tower. Bob attended services and sat quietly blending in with the crowd, but the pastor noticed his presence. Reverend Robert West waited a while before he finally introduced himself, but when he did, he welcomed his new member with open arms. Bob had finally got his faith back in order. Bob had been living his life out in the open for a few years now, and he finally thought it was time to get a driver's license. Once he passed the test, he got himself a used, bright orange Volkswagen Beetle. Now, with his transportation upgraded from the bus, Bob was able to throw himself into church activities. He even started going to singles events hosted by the area's Lutheran churches. That's where Bob met Dolores Miller in the spring of 1977. She was in her mid-thirties and was recently divorced from her husband. She worked in the warehouse of the Base Exchange in Aurora, Colorado. This time around, the relationship was not a whirlwind romance that ended in a quick marriage. Bob and Dolores dated for quite some time. Dolores knew that Bob didn't want to work in a kitchen forever. He told her that his wife had passed away from cancer, and he had taken a job cooking as something mindless to do as he dealt with her illness. He had been an accountant, but his time out of the trade made it hard for him to get back into the business. She encouraged him to take some courses through H&R Block to help him get back into accounting. At the end of 1977, Bob used his sharp, clean appearance and his humble personality to secure a job in accounting for a company called Roberto Distributing. He was a small distributor of carpet and building materials who needed someone to keep their books in order. It paid $900 a month, but that was more than enough for Bob. He eventually moved into a new apartment closer to Dolores and made extra money on the side helping prepare income tax returns during tax season. After working for Roberto for two years, Bob created a resume that listed his work history with fake employers previous to his current employer. It seemed that new employers only checked the most current reference, so Bob was able to land a new job with better pay at All Packaging Company. After a while, Bob and Dolores purchased a condo together in Montbello, just east of downtown Denver. The couple didn't live there together, though. That would be quite scandalous for the time since they weren't married. Dolores moved in, and Bob stayed in his apartment trying to start his own consulting business. They stayed like this throughout the rest of the 70s and into the 80s. It was a very non-eventful, routine life. In a huge departure from the quick marriage John had with Helen, it wasn't until 1985 that Bob would finally marry Dolores. Bob's consulting business had failed and he no longer needed his apartment, so the couple took the plunge, got hitched, and Bob moved into the condo. As the two were moving boxes of Bob's stuff into the condo, a nosy neighbor asked Dolores what was going on. Dolores told her that she and Bob were getting married and then he would be moving in. The neighbor would later say that she was surprised to hear the news because she'd never even heard Dolores mention the name Bob before. 
Bob and Dolores were married on November 23, 1985, at a Lutheran church in Maryland where Dolores's family lived. Not long after the wedding, though Bob had previously been promoted at all packaging, he was fired for not being able to adapt to the changes at the company. They were implementing computer accounting systems, and Bob just wasn't able to change with the times. The economy in the Denver area wasn't doing well, and Bob had a hard time finding a new job. He tried to resurrect Robert Clark Associates, but like all the other times he tried to start his own business, he just couldn't get it off the ground. By 1987, the bank was threatening to foreclose on their condo, and Dolores was threatening to leave Bob. Due to his inability to find a job in Denver, Bob had sent a resume to an employment agency in Richmond, Virginia, and they had responded with a job offer. At the end of 1987, Bob traveled to Richmond and got set up at his new job, and Dolores would come later. That only happened after almost being identified by the nosy neighbor at the condo. Earlier that year, the neighbor, Wanda, had been looking through the tabloid papers when she came across the story of John E. List. When she looked at the picture, she realized it looked just like Bob. He was the same height, had the same glasses, was a Lutheran, and worked in accounting. Bob also had a scar behind his right ear, and Wanda believed he was the same age as John. Bob said he was 55, but Wanda thought he was lying because he looked five or six years older, which would match the age of John. Wanda brought the story to Dolores when John wasn't home, but the wife just laughed it off. She told Wanda that Bob couldn't hurt a flea. Then she asked, quote, How could you think this awful man is my Bob? End quote. Wanda asked her to show it to Bob to see what he said, and Dolores apprehensively agreed. When Wanda came back later to see what Bob had said, Dolores confessed that she had changed her mind and thrown out the paper. Dolores told her neighbor that it didn't even look that much like Bob. A feeling of foolishness ran over Wanda, and she just shook the whole thing off as a weird coincidence. Bob loved Richmond. It was a great city for someone who loved history. Dolores stayed in Denver to get the financial situation with the condo sorted out, and then she moved to be with Bob. She held out a little longer to try to get a transfer to a job on a base in Virginia, but when none came available, she just quit and drove to Richmond. With their history with the condo, the couple wasn't able to be picky with the house they purchased. Their real estate agent was lucky to find a fairly new house in a nice development with a lake that was just in their price range. The sale still did not come easily. Though he had become Bob Clark, he couldn't stop being John List. He spent a month going to the house with a notebook, making lists, taking pictures, asking about the neighbors. Bob asked them to include the shelf paper and the bug zapper in the sale. The original owners agreed, one, because they just wanted to get Bob Clark to finally agree to the purchase, and two, who cares about shelf paper? Bob and Dolores finally agreed to buy the house. This would be the last place that John List, living as Bob Clark, would live outside of a prison cell. He was an accountant at Madria, Joyner, Kirkham, and Woody, while also taking some freelance accounting work on the side. Dolores was supposed to find a new job after she made it to Richmond, but that didn't happen. She started working at another base, but it was just too far to make the drive every day, so she quit. Then she got in a car accident and had to have surgery on her finger, so she planned on waiting until that healed to start looking for a job. Once again, Bob was the breadwinner and was struggling to make ends meet. Bob Clark just couldn't get away from his life as John List. At the end of the 1980s, a new program on television called America's Most Wanted was sweeping the nation. The show had host John Walsh give details of the FBI's most wanted criminals. 
By 1989, the show had already assisted in locating wanted fugitives David James Roberts and Jack Darrell Farmer. It was ironically one of Bob's favorite shows. It's unclear if he was watching to see if he would appear on the show or if he just had an interest in justice for people besides himself. Bob rarely missed an episode of his favorite show, but on May 21, 1989, he and Dolores went to a church social so he wasn't able to catch the episode. If he was home, he might have seen the story about himself and fled, but he wasn't, so he didn't. He sat at the church social, unaware that the story about him, the real him, was being broadcast to 22 million people. One of those viewers was Wanda Flannery, the nosy neighbor who had already suspected Bob of being John List. Wanda, her daughter Eva, and her son-in-law Randy were watching the show when John List appeared on the screen. Wanda screamed out, quote, There he is! That's Bob! End quote. They watched the whole segment while Wanda pointed out all of the similarities. When the show was over, Randy picked up the phone and dialed 1-800-CRIME-89. He read them the address that Dolores had written as the return address on her last letter to her old neighbor. The police and FBI had gotten many tips over the years. New York, Michigan, California, Florida, but none of them had ever been John List just tall, skinny men who dressed nicely and liked numbers. On June 1st, 1989, a team of FBI agents out of the Richmond, Virginia office approached the ranch house on Sagewood Trace and knocked on the door. Dolores answered and was taken aback by the fact that there were FBI agents at her door. They showed her the FBI flyer of John List and asked her if it looked like her husband. Dolores said no at first, and then she started to shake and answered, quote, that could be my husband, end quote. She showed the agents a picture of her and Bob from their wedding, and the lead agent, Kevin August, was sure that it was the same man. Bob wasn't home, though. He was at work. So after Dolores hesitantly told them where he was, one agent stayed behind and the rest traveled to Richmond to talk to Bob. When agents arrived at Madria, Joyner, Kirkman, and Woody, they asked the receptionist where Bob Clark was, and she told him he was in the back, making copies. Before the agents could go back and look for him, he walked out of the back with a handful of photocopies. Agent August asked, quote, are you John List? End quote. Bob said no. The agents didn't hesitate. They grabbed Bob and put him up against the wall. Agent August asked him, quote, do you have a mastoid scar? End quote. Bob answered yes. Then he asked, quote, have you had a hernia operation? End quote. Bob answered yes. The scars matched and the FBI knew that they had their man. Though he would continue to deny it for some time, they realized that Bob Clark was indeed John List. John made no attempt to proclaim his innocence as the FBI agents searched his office for evidence. They took him out of the office building and to the local FBI office. There, John maintained that he was in fact Robert Clark. John could deny it all he wanted. The FBI fingerprinted him, and his prints matched the ones they had on file for John List. In court, John maintained that he was Bob and agreed to waive an extradition hearing if they would keep his name listed as Robert Clark when he got to New Jersey. The court agreed, and John List was on his way back to the place where he had savagely murdered his family in cold blood. It wasn't until Helen's sister, Jean, traveled to New Jersey to talk to John in person that he finally broke his facade of Bob Clark. When she arrived at the jail and came face to face with her brother-in-law, she reached out and hugged him. She let go of the hate and the bitterness and just hugged him and cried. When they finally sat down, she asked him why he did it, and he answered, quote, there was no other way, end quote. 
When she asked him why there was no other way, he answered, quote, It just had to be that way, end quote. John, after 18 years, still believed that he had saved his family by killing them. He had no remorse. Even though he talked openly to Helen's sister, outside of the visitation room, he maintained that he was Bob Clark. During the bail hearing, John stood up and pleaded not guilty and also said, quote, I am not John List. My name is Robert P. Clark, end quote. On February 16, 1990, John's lawyer announced that John had acknowledged that he was in fact John List. This was a legal decision because John's lawyer knew that he wouldn't win the trial claiming mistaken identity. They had his fingerprints. They had confirmation from family members. They knew who he was. What John's new strategy was, was to try to get his confession letter thrown out of court. It was a letter in an envelope in a locked cabinet that was addressed to his pastor. It was a privileged communication. First, the defense tried to get all of the evidence from the house dismissed because it was obtained without a warrant. The judge denied their request based on many reasons, one of which was because the note on the desk said, quote, to the finder, please notify the proper authorities, end quote, which was basically an open invitation to search the house and made it clear that John had no intention of coming back. The judge also denied the request to dismiss the confession, saying that if Mr. List wanted to have a confidential conversation with his pastor, he should have gone to church. And honestly, even without the confession letter, is there any doubt that John List killed his family? The guns he used were at the house, he went out and pulled all of his money out of the bank, mailed the key to himself so the police could unlock his desk, planned out to have his mail and newspaper, even the milk delivery paused. He wrote notes to the school that said the kids would be on vacation. Oh, and then he disappeared for 18 years and assumed a new identity. When those tactics didn't work, they tried to claim insanity, but that didn't fly either. But a psychiatrist, a witness for the prosecution, testified that List carried out the murders with a sane, cool mind. Dr. Stephen Simmering said List told him in a recent interview how he killed his wife. And today it was the most dramatic testimony of the trial, and it came from the prosecution psychiatrist. Dr. Stephen Simmering interviewed List at length, and in riveting testimony today, told the court what List told him. Yeah. had debated the options, weighed them uh, at, for at least three weeks, and had finally arrived at a decision, uh, had secured the weapons, the ammunition, and decided that he would do it. It was a horrible thing. But once I started, I was like on auto or auto drive. I killed all of them. It was as if someone had taken a key and unlocked the mind of a serial killer. He made very elaborate plans to carry out the killings in a uh, serial fashion. He did not want two of the family members to be present at the same time. On April 12, 1990, the jury found John Emile List guilty of five counts of murder in the first degree. Since there was no death penalty in New Jersey in 1971, the judge sentenced him to the maximum sentence of five consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. At John's sentencing, the judge said, quote, The name of John Emile List will be eternally synonymous with concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil, end quote. There is one other victim in this story that doesn't get much mention in stories about John List, and that's Dolores Miller. She held a press conference after his arrest claiming that she didn't believe that he was John List. She answered countless questions about the similarities between the two men, but she maintained her belief. She eventually sold the house on Sagewood Trace and moved to Maryland to be with her family. 
1989, she divorced Robert Clark and has been maintaining a very private life since the trial. The day after John's lawyer announced that his client had acknowledged his true identity, a note was left on the grave sites of Helen, Patty, Fred, and John Jr.'s graves that read, quote, Finally, you can rest in peace. God bless. End quote. John List died on March 21, 2008. He was 82 years old. Nobody claimed his body. When the prison attempted to contact Dolores to ask if she wanted to collect his body, they got no response. His body was cremated, and the remains were buried in a state cemetery. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just €12. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of €50 or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.